workforce development policies that target low-income workers are in many ways a vehicle to expand opportunity and relieve poverty while maintaining human dignity. Framing anti-poverty policies as pro-mobility is something poverty studies and workforce development fields share. To discuss pro-mobility policies, I'm joined by my colleague and AEI's Director of Poverty Studies, Scott Winship. His recent report, Reforming Tax Credits to Promote Child Opportunity and Aid Working Families, lays out proposals to reform the child tax credit to promote work, increase family stability, and promote upwardly mobile life paths. We discuss his new report, The History of Child Mobility Policies, Potential Unintended Consequences, Including Marriage Disincentives, Scott's work on social capital, and how he thinks about racial gaps in upward mobility. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Scott Winship, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Brent. So you're one of my heroes, uh, <laughs> uh, my public policy heroes. We've only gotten to know each other in the last year or so, but you have this amazing breadth and depth of knowledge about the American welfare system, what the data points to in terms of its outcomes and its problems and its need for reform. And there's a lot going on in that right now. We're going to talk, I hope, a lot about what's going on with the Biden administration's initiatives on Capitol Hill. But before we do that, why don't you give us the background on Scott Winship and how he got to be one of the most influential it's a, <laughs> intellectual leaders on welfare policy in America? Well, you're, you're too kind. I, I have to say, I don't, I don't feel especially influential much these days. But we're all trying, I suppose. So I came from a small town background, was fortunate enough to get to go to a grade school, Northwestern. I started out in biomedical engineering because I was good at math and liked science and didn't really know much else, you know, what, what that qualified me to do. Ended up hating engineering, but I took an intro to sociology class. And then what was really influential was that in the spring of my freshman year, the LA riots happened in 1992 which really made me, I think, for the first time, kind of want to understand better poverty, issues of racial inequality. So I changed my major, took a class with Christopher Jenks while I was there that was on urban poverty specifically, ended up being a research and research assistant for him. And then later, he was my grad school advisor. In between grad school and then, I did a, a stint doing community organizing at ACORN, which was a, you know, a you know, borderline radical community organization. Can we just pause there for yeah. a second? Because that wasn't part of your background that I was aware of. So it sounds like you had an acorn organizer. It's not the Scott Winship that I know today. Correct. And that suggests that at some point you had the experience of some sort of mugging by reality. Can you talk a little bit about that? What happened? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was, I was quite lefty in, in college. I did a hunger strike once for Asian American studies at Northwestern, which was kind of over the top because it was being considered by the administration at the time, but they, darn it, they just weren't going fast enough. So my first job out of college, I ended, I, I ended up going to St. Louis and taking this community organizing job. And to some extent, you know, it was a, it was a bad fit. I wasn't there all that long. My main job was to, was to kind of figure out what the policy details should be for a ballot initiative campaign that we wanted to do statewide in Missouri to raise the minimum wage. The issue, it was $4.25 at the time. This is 1995. And the issue was how much did we want to try to raise it? And 
my boss ended up going with, I believe, six and a quarter. You know, so a $2 hike in one fell swoop. And, you know, I, I think when I realized it was going to be a bad fit was when I sort of said, well, are you at all concerned? You know, 70% of Missouri's residents live in either Kansas City or St. Louis. And there's, you know, a state on the other side of the river in both of those cities where the minimum wage is going to be $2 lower. You know, are we concerned that businesses are going to, you know, start relocating that will hurt economic growth, whatever. And that's going to hurt the people that we're, that we're working for in the end. And, and the response was something to the effect, I want to keep your podcast G-rated, but it was something about how this was economist malarkey, we'll say, we'll Mm -hmm. use the president's favorite word. And further that we weren't going to win this campaign. This was all about, you know, building an organization, building a movement to which my response was, wait, 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 we're not going to, we're not going to win. And so, you know, it was just a very different orientation. When my student loans came due, he tried to encourage me to just default to my student loans <laughs> as previous generations of activists had done. And, and, and we parted ways soon after that. So that didn't go over well with the Flinty, your inner Flinty Manor. That's uh, right. background. We don't <laughs> default on loans. That's not that's not part of the ethos. That's interesting. I went to the University of Oregon and I wasn't a radical, but I was, you know, pretty standard issue liberal. And what knocked it out of me was spending when I was working on Capitol Hill, worked for two members from Georgia, spent a lot of time in Georgia, both in the urban and the rural areas of Georgia. And I was like, wow, is is this the best we can do on anti-poverty mm. policy? Because it did not look good. And this is after decades of investment and civil rights and voting rights. And it launched me off in a completely different direction of just kind of like, okay, I don't think we have to blame the system for having created that, right? There's a lot of other things that went into creating that. But it is now associated with a failure to improve as much as we would like. And we need to think about alternatives. One other question about your background. I see this frequently anecdotally, but I think it's, it is true that a lot of people who start out in hard sciences don't finish in hard sciences. And what was the realization that maybe you were built to do something other than biomedical research? Yeah, I think, you know, it's a combination of just not feeling that engaged by, I want to say pure science, but even even sort of the applied science of engineering. The course load was difficult and kind of without a clear path about how I would kind of feel fulfilled by it in the end. And ultimately, you know, there, there was this, this sense as I sort of got more interested in, in social and political issues that I just wanted to make more of a, of a difference in the world you know, changing policy or or having influence in, in terms of research that would help policymakers. So it was it was really sort of the combination of the two, I think. And then yeah. meeting Christopher Jenks, you know, is a really big deal for me, just because he, you know, I think he considers himself probably center left, but more than anybody I've ever known, he's just one of these people who, you know, starts with a research question thinks about how you could use data to answer it. And then if the answer, you know, is at the end is something that was different than than what you mm-hmm. hoped you'd find. You update, you know, your beliefs. How antiquated it all sounds, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and, yeah. and you know, more more than working at Acorn or anything. You know, the real the real thing. I think that kind of eventually set me on a path to, to sort of be considered right of center was was working on welfare reform research with him, where we both 
you know, assumed that we were going to finally produce the paper that would show that welfare reform had hurt single moms and their kids. And in fact, you know, found the opposite of that. And, you know, it was, it was many years even after that, before I started meeting all the really interesting center-right folks like you and Yuval Levin and Raihan Salam and Ryan Streeter and all, and all these folks. But that was sort of the roots of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting list of people because what strikes me about them is these are all people who are really serious about reform and about making things better, especially for those who are kind of at the periphery of American society, but not at war with sort of market capitalism and you know, yes. opportunity. And, you know, these are all really important ideas. So you, you finished your PhD and what happened after you finished it? Essentially, I, had, I was ABD, for folks who may not know, essentially, and when you get your PhD, you get to a stage where you have had your dissertation idea approved by your committee. And the only thing you have left, you know, which is the major <laughs> thing that you produce in grad school is your dissertation. So 2005, I, I, I moved down to D.C. and promptly got very distracted and wouldn't end up finishing my, my PhD until 2009. Because I, I took jobs in DC, first running an online magazine called The Democratic Strategist that sort of tells you politically, you know, I was still sort of considered myself to be sort of a new Democrat, a Clinton, Clinton Democrat. And that led to a job with a think tank that's still around doing great work called Third Way, which is sort of a moderate Democratic think tank. From there, I went to the Pew Charitable Trusts and was the research manager of something called the Economic Mobility Project. That led to a job at the Brookings Institution where I worked with Isabel Sawhill on economic mobility stuff and, and poverty and inequality. Went to the Manhattan Institute from there. So that was, that was the real, you know, when I, when I was at Brookings, I, I had the opportunity to publish in National Review and National Affairs and very jarring and uncomfortable for me for, for a while. I ended up on the cover of National Review at the end of 2011 <laughs> and was really concerned and, and, and very uncomfortable. It was a piece about economic mobility and why conservatives uh, should care more about economic mobility. but. Ended up in the Manhattan Institute. From there, ended up running something called the Social Capital Project at the Joint Economic Committee, working for Senator Mike Lee, who is eventually the chair of the committee, and then happily uh, have ended up here at AEI. Terrific. Okay. Very interesting. And I again, for our audience, especially our if we've got any young people who are plowing away at engineering degrees, which I see Honestly, it's hard to go a day without seeing us and then bail because they just they just sense that it's not satisfying. They're not going to be satisfying for them in the future. Just be of good cheer because you're in very good company with people like Scott Winship and others who have all the brains they need to do that job, just not the passion for doing it. And lots of times, you know, folks who have real strong math affinity, ability, and more, more, than, more than myself, you know, those end up being people who do really important social science research. Yeah. You know, they've, they've got such a strong quantitative background. They're just applying it in a different way. Yeah, that's great. So you've been really busy. I follow you closely on Twitter. There's lots of give and take around the president's proposals to expand child tax credit and other mechanisms for getting more resources into low-income families. I'd like you to just sort of back up and give people, if you can, kind of the big picture, the context for where this debate is unfolding. This is not new. We've been wrestling with 
this these types of questions, especially since welfare reform, like how do we make kind of making work pay and encouraging low-income individuals to not become dependent upon government largesse and so on. So give us the Scott Winship version of how this debate has developed basically over the last few decades. Yeah. So I think, you know, you go back to around 1990 or so, the biggest anti-poverty program that we had at the time was something called Aid to Families with Dependent Children, which was primarily, you know, cash assistance in the form of a monthly check, mostly to single mothers and their kids, single fathers as well, to some extent, very small number of married couples. But but mostly, this was a program with roots in the New Deal when when it was really intended for widows and their, and their kids. At the time, there wasn't divorce, so single parent families tended to, to be families where one of the spouses had, had actually died or occasionally deserted. But this was expanded over, over decades. And by the time we get to 1990, a sizable share of kids are being raised by parents who are getting AFDC benefits. There's a lot of concern about whether it constitutes a poverty trap. If you're receiving benefits and then you take a job, your AFDC benefits would be reduced. And so it, there were these real disincentives to, to going off of the program. You know, for a lot of women, it also, the amount that you could get on AFDC, while not luxurious by any stri- anybody's definition, you know, when you, when you combined it with other benefits, with food stamps and with Medicaid and things like that, compared reasonably well against what the expense would be of taking a low-wage job, having to pay for childcare, potentially losing your Medicaid, and not, not having employer-provided coverage. And, and so there was a concern that this program was really violating kind of all of Americans' sort of normative values about reciprocity and independence and self-sufficiency, that it was not going to be good for kids in the end, that it was one of the reasons why single parenthood had skyrocketed between the 1960s and the 1990s. And so there were bipartisan calls for reforming the program. Bill Clinton ran in 1992, among many other things, but on ending welfare as we know it, from the start of his, of his presidential term, was working on, a, on an ambitious proposal to reform AFDC. They decided to put health care reform first, and the rest is sort of history. Republicans take control of Congress in 94 and pursue their own vision of reform, which was tougher on work, but essentially gave states a big block grant and a lot of flexibility as to how they would spend it instituted time limits for families that were on what was now called temporary assistance for needy families and work requirements as well. Alongside that, we, we expanded the safety net in a bunch of other ways. Food stamps expanded a lot. Medicaid and something called the Children's Health Insurance Program were expanded. Eventually, we got the child tax credit, which has been the focus of the debate this year. The earned income tax credit, which goes to working families, was also expanded. So a real revolution in the 1990s that constituted you know, conservative ideas and liberal ideas. And a lot of people, including myself at the time, thought that welfare reform was going to really be a disaster. And I think the research has been pretty consistent in showing that on net, it's been a real benefit in terms of reducing poverty and hardship for single mothers and their families. Okay, so that was kind of the conventional wisdom up until 2016 or so. Kathy Eden and Luke Schaefer put out a book called $2 a Day of Poverty, which argued that welfare reform had actually left behind this group that was extremely poor, subsisting on no more than $2 a day. I think there are a lot of problems with that book. I've written about it before, but it was quite influential, I think, in liberal circles. 2017 or so, 
behind the scenes, there are policymakers and academics who start working on proposals for a child allowance, giving every child in America essentially a, a basic income. And a number of Democratic candidates ran on that in the, in the 2020 race. Biden eventually signed on to it, and Democrats had proposed it in May of 2020, actually, when they were proposing pandemic relief. And then in the American Rescue Plan Act in March of this year, they finally passed this child allowance. And so the, the debate this year has really been around whether this one-year expansion of the child tax credit should be extended further. And I should also say that there are a lot of folks on the right who have embraced this idea as well. Senator Romney came out with a proposal back in February, I think. There are a number of folks who are either kind of social conservatives who are, who are concerned about families and fertility and whether the families that would like to have a traditional breadwinner, stay-at-home parent family are able to do that. Even at AEI, as, as Brent knows, you know, there's been quite a bit of division on, on this question. But, but it really is, as you say, kind of it's revived the debates of welfare reform, which is, you know, does giving cash to parents with no strings attached, will it lead parents to respond in ways that ultimately could be bad for them or for their kids? And that's really where you've been focusing a lot of your energy is in that, that argument. Does this disincentivize labor force participation? So, and I know you to be a very fair and balanced person. You understand your opponent's arguments frequently better than they understand them. So, Give us the pro and con on that question of whether these types of subsidies discourage work. Yeah. So I think the two sort of incentives that I and, and others, such as Robert Doerr, um, AI's president, Matt Weininger, and Angela Rashidi here, folks like Mickey Kaus, lot, some of the folks at the Heritage Foundation, the things that we're worried about are one, you know, it, is it going to cause people to work less? Because, well, for two reasons, like it, it provides more income which allows them to buy more stuff, including buying more leisure. You, if you sort of think of work and leisure as being two options, you know, having more income, you would expect some people to, to work less because they can afford to now. And secondly, you know, will, it, will it lower the return to work? Is it worth it to work versus not, not work at all? Is it worth it to work more hours versus fewer hours? A child tax credit that you can get without working changes that equation too. So will cause people to work less? And will it cause some people to, will it cause people to marry less and to choose raising kids as single parents rather than in marriage? What's the evidence on these things? The literatures are pretty complicated. I think the research on whether safety net benefits increase single parenthood, pretty inconclusive. I think for a while, say in the 1980s, early 1990s, the consensus academic view was that it didn't really have any effect. Folks like Robert Moffat, you know, who, who are really the experts on this, I think Moffat still believes the effects are pretty small. But even he, I think, eventually came around to saying, well, it does look like there are at least some small effects on, on single parenthood. All of these studies, you know, I would say this too for the, the work incentive literature, are looking at problems that are really difficult to, questions that are really difficult to answer. When conservatives worry about this stuff, they worry about what does the world look like you know, 40 or 50 years from now, not the child tax credit was expanded in March, like here we are in October, <laughs> you know, is there more single parenthood? And so the research can only sort of indirectly answer some of these questions. The, the research on work, I think, is much more worrying. There's a new paper that just came out by Kevin Corinth, who used to be here at AEI, is at the University of Chicago now, and Bruce Meyer, who's at the University of Chicago, also has an AEI affiliation. 
where they show pretty definitively in my book that the expanded child tax credit would be expected to reduce work a fair amount, potentially as much as reversing the employment gains among single mothers that occurred in the 1990s. This has been very controversial. It's a live question. There are folks, I think, who have said they're going to respond to it, who have not really responded to it yet. But there was research even before that suggesting the negative income tax experiments of the 1970s. You know, there was this, this sort of randomized experiment with, with giving people cash. And that found they hoped that this negative income tax would actually cause people to work more versus the old AFDC program. And in fact, they found that it actually discouraged work even more than the old AFDC program. So it's hardly a slam dunk, any of these questions, I would say, for one side or the other. And I've tried to be pretty clear in what I've written that, that most of these are concerns that may may not come to pass, but there's enough evidence to, to make them reasonable concerns. Right. But I mean, what you said a couple of minutes ago about reversing the progress that time-limited welfare reform has given us in terms of increasing incomes, reducing child poverty, all the positive effects that it had, that that would be a pretty huge effect. That doesn't seem to me to be in the range of sort of, it's just hard for me to imagine people looking at the data sets would come to such diametrically different views of this. That's not a small effect. That's not a marginal effect. That would be a gigantic effect. Absolutely. And, you know, these are quite technical questions. You know, I should say my my training is in sociology rather than economics. And a lot of the debate on work in particular has revolved around these things called elasticities, which essentially is just a way of saying for any percentage change in income, for any percentage change in the return to working versus not working or to working an additional hour versus not working an additional hour, what is the resulting change in employment. So these are called elasticities. There's a vast literature on this stuff. Many papers are, you know, not strongly related to the specific question of the of the child tax credit expansion, but but many of them, you know, are, are more directly related. And I should say until until this most recent paper by Kevin and Bruce and, and their colleagues, folks had just missed, you know, this potential way that that expanding benefits without requiring work reduces the return to work for a lot of people and maybe not by enough that they'll choose not to work. But for some people, you know, it definitely by enough that, that they would choose to do that. So it's a complicated enough topic that, you know, I ended up in all of these arguments on Twitter about elasticities where I was quite confused, frankly, during during much of it. But it's it's been heartening to realize that, well, the folks who seemed like they understood it all much better than than I did, you know, were completely missing a huge part of the story. Even there was a National Academy of Sciences committee that was assembled a few years ago to look at ways to reduce child poverty. And as Kevin and Bruce point out in their paper, they completely missed this incentive that's that's embedded in, in the expansion. So this is a blue ribbon panel, you know, that was tasked with looking at ways to reduce poverty and, and they and they missed it as well. So these are these are difficult questions. And I think everybody involved has been doing their best to to get to answers honestly, but but I think there's a little bit of a failure to reckon with, with this latest paper. Well, we will make sure to include that paper in the show notes, as well as I think that Bruce and his colleagues had, was it a Washington Post op-ed on this? I can't remember. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Last week. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure to include that as well. So people can get, I mean, I find Bruce's stuff very accessible 
even to non-experts such as myself, yep. but the op-ed will sort of outline the basics of the argument for those who are interested in going deeper. But it's interesting to me, and I just wonder what your reaction to this is, like most of the debate about the bill, the president's proposal in the House and the Senate, and we'll mention sign off and cinema sign off. And, you know, are we going to keep the progressives on board to get, you know, this thing through? That all seems to be focused on the price tag issues, not things like this. Do you do you think that's true or is it sort of beneath the surface? Is there a, is there a vibrant argument on the Hill related to this disincentive effect? Yeah, I, I think it, it's hard for me to say on the Hill. I haven't been on, on the Hill in a while, but I, I think Manchin in particular, you know, feels very strongly about this sort of work disincentive possibility. He's really made that a line in the sand over the course of the last week or so. So it's definitely something he's thinking about. The wonks, it absolutely, you know, is, mm-hmm. is sort of has been at the heart of right. most of the real fiercest debates this year. There is, you know, this this sort of other aspect of the policy change that has kind of receded to the background a little bit, but which was a much bigger part of the debate earlier in the year, which was more around the ability of families to afford the number of kids that they want earlier mm-hmm. in life rather than later in life, the ability of families to sort of have one worker and one one parent at home. That's where the social conservatives, I think, have really been attracted to this expansion. That's certainly where Senator Romney came at it from. I think you have folks like Senator Hawley, Senator Rubio that have really been in, interested in expanding the credit for those reasons. That debate has, you know, at times flared up a little bit, and I've, I've kind of waded into those waters too. But it's really kind of become sort of a secondary issue versus this issue of incentives. So that's a good transition to another topic I wanted to cover, which is the economics of marriage. And I think we were at a meeting together before you came to AEI. You may have been there, but it was something Brad Wilcox convened on benefit cliffs and their impact Mm -hmm. on marriage. And I sat listening to that conversation you know, both people sort of on the ground and researchers and government policy people. And I find it just completely unpersuasive that the decline of marriage is somehow related strongly to changes in economic policy or tax or benefit issues, you know, benefit cliffs. And it just seems to me that the impulse to marriage is so powerful that generally speaking, when people are in love, they don't stop to think about oh, what's, what are the tax implications of this? Or, so there's something else going on. I'm wondering where you sort of fall on that in that discussion about mm-hmm. the relative weight of cultural factors or sociological factors versus the economics of marriage. Yeah. Now, it's a, it's a really important question. And I think where you have to start out I view kind of rising family instability, or you can call it, you know, family decline or whatever you want, you want to call it sort of the the increasing tendency of kids to grow up without both of their biological parents. That is of a piece with a broad range of changes in what I would call associational life, what we do together, basically, as humans. So we haven't just seen declines in kind of family cohesion or stability. We've seen declines in the extent to which people do things with their neighbors. We've seen declining trust in institutions. People spend less time doing things after work with their coworkers. 
you know, people live further apart from their parents as adults than they used to. People have fewer kids than they used to. They attend church less than they used to. So, so across just a huge array of indicators, we do less and less together over time, which I think is, is at root kind of a, a function of, of our rising affluence, actually. It's, it's a little bit off topic. But so, so I do think that the decline in or the increase in single parenthood, for instance, you know, is part of something much bigger than changes in safety net policy. But do I think changes in safety net policy have, have influenced things on the margin? Yeah, I think they, it probably does. Again, the research, you know, is not a slam dunk on this question, in part because it's just very difficult to sort of think about how, you know, the AFTC program created in 1935 and then expanded in the 1960s and then reformed in the 1990s, how that has contributed to increasing single parenthood over time. But you do hear it's not hard to find anecdotal stories from people who are receiving safety net benefits who are well aware of you know, what would change were they to take a job or to or to get married. There are a lot of couples who are cohabiting, you know, who who would like to marry, but who know that it's financially, it just doesn't make much sense to do that. You know, how much weight to put on that versus these other changes, really, really hard to say. But I, I do think, especially for folks who have had less formal education, for instance, as having more formal education has become more important over time, they have been especially sensitive to these changes in whether it makes sense to work, whether whether or not it makes sense to to marry. In a paper that I wrote with Rachel Sheffield for the Joint Economic Committee, we had a nice chart that sort of showed the trend in the typical safety net package available to, to a single parent versus the trend in out-of-wedlock births. And those increase, you know, pretty similarly, where there's there's a lag of I think 15 years or something like that in how out of wedlock births responds to safety net generosity. And you know, is that causal? Like it would take a lot better evidence than what than what we than our chart to establish that. But the chart's pretty striking. It is the case that it's more feasible today, which is not to say that it's easy, but it's more feasible today to choose to raise kids alone than it was in even 1970, you know, 1960 for sure. Yeah, I mean, it just, that actually makes sense to me. And that lag of 15 years makes a lot of sense to me. I think that it's like the background sense of risk associated with being a single parent is reduced by the presence of the public benefits. It's not a, a formal kind of oh, well, now I've got this new thing that's available to me, so I think I'll have a baby. I think it's, I'm not going to take the necessary precautions to avoid having a baby, but that the rising affluence of the society generally just you know accompanies this expansion of benefits that are available if, if you need them. That just makes people, it just lowers their anxiety about what happens if yeah. they do happen to get pregnant outside marriage. So, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I wasn't familiar with the lag. That's really interesting. So let's take it down one more level then and go to the social capital work that you've done, because that seems to be the other, another big contributing factor to some of these larger changes that we've, we've noted. So you ran something on the Joint Economic Committee on social capital. Tell us how that project developed 
and what it's, I mean, I know it continues, the data that you put together continues to produce stuff, you know, reports and things like that. But how did it come together and what what were the primary things that you saw come out of it while you were leading it? Yeah, so it, it came together when Senator Lee became the vice chair of the committee start of 2017. Essentially, the way the JEC works is the chair and the vice chair each get kind of a pot of money. I should say that the JEC, the, the joint in JEC means both House and Senate. So the, the members of Congress who have been chairs and vice chairs over the years have done very different things with the, with the committee. What Senator Lee wanted to do was to highlight the importance of social capital, of the various ways that community life can either be an advantage or a disadvantage, you know, representing the state of Utah, which you know, is sort of off the charts on, on a lot of these measures of, of, of social capital and of economic mobility, as Raj Chetty's research has shown, you know, is something that Senator Lee believes very strongly relates to the sense of community life and togetherness that, that exists in Utah. So they hired me to, to run this research project. And, and that project continues, by the way. Vanessa Brown Calder is running it now for Senator Lee. But while I was there, you know, over three and a half years or so, we put out a series of reports, the most important of which, you know, kind of look at trends in all these indicators. So the, the ones I rattled off before, you know, come out of that research. We created an, an index for every state in the country and a you know not not quite as good one for every county in the country, so that we could actually see, you know, is it the case that places that are that look good on social capital in some domain, you know, do they also look good on the other domains? And that turns out to be quite true. Places that have strong families also tend to have a lot of robust community life, a lot of trust in institutions, access to a lot of emotional support. So those things do do sort of hang together tend to be much stronger in northern New England and the upper Midwest and mountain states tend to look a lot worse in, in southern states, you know, basically running from straight across from California to the Carolinas. So documented those, those patterns and had a number of reports you know, on topics from declining labor force participation among men to brain drain to family decline, volunteering, looking at trends in volunteering. That was the first couple of years. And then since then, the project has focused more on policy in ways that the federal government in particular at the margins can kind of reverse some of these declines and help help places that are, that are low in social capital. So give me two things. The paper that you were most invested in, in terms of this is really important and people need to pay attention to it. And then an example of the policy side of social capital and and what government can actually do about it. Yep. You know, I think on the on the research side, the one that that I felt was probably the most important was one I did with with Rachel Sheffield that was I think called Love Marriage and the Baby Carriage. Not a beloved title I would I would say uh, <laughs> among even the, the team, but essentially looked at the increase in the share of births that are to single women. And what accounts for those over time? And we we broke it down from when marriage declines generally, you know, people delay marriage more than they used to, or just don't get married at all. There's a bigger pool of people at risk of an unwed pregnancy. That ends up being a big part of the story. The other big part of the story is the decline in shotgun marriage. So specifically, you know, when a couple finds an unmarried couple finds out they're pregnant, what do they do? In some cases, the woman chooses to have an abortion. The abortion story actually isn't a big part of the trend over time. Abortion, it turns out, is at essentially a historic low. It's down to 
three row levels today. But the decline in shotgun marriage is a big part of the story. So it, people who find out that they're pregnant and then they don't get married, you know, that wasn't a thing in the past, or at least for a lot of people, it wasn't the thing they, they felt they needed to get married or they were compelled to get married by other family members. That has basically gone away. And that, and that has contributed to the number of women who give birth being single. So that was an important paper. You know, on the policy side, we had a number that I was that I, that I was really happy with. We did one on, on policing reform in the wake of sort of all of the George Floyd protests everything last year as an example of a way that, that you can regain trust in institutions and as an example of why having trust in institutions is really important. Probably the one that I liked the most was done by Vanessa, actually, where she looked at, she showed how the different ways that cities rely on zoning and land use policy and school districting policy, the ways that those choices affect the quality of schools available to kids. So in places, you know, that have more open access to housing and to the schools that kids attend, kids get to access higher quality schools. And so that's, it's actually an example of where federal policy, you know, has a little bit of a limited lever because these land use and zoning decisions are really sort of state and local decisions. But it shows how something like policy around land use can actually affect the places where, where kids grow up and sort of the influences they're exposed to that way and the quality of the institutions that are open to them, both of which affect their, their opportunities over time. Right. So it's another example of how kind of we make our neighborhoods and then our neighborhoods make us. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Okay. I want to be respectful of your time. So you wrote this report back in June called Long Shadows, the Black-White Gap in Multigenerational Poverty. And in that report, you said a race-blind approach will not be sufficient if it does not account for the multi-generational experience of poverty. Tell us what you meant by that. And I'm particularly curious about this because I sense that we are reacting so strongly against some of the abuses of kind of an intersectional analysis of various problems, including poverty, that we are at risk of kind of forgetting or ignoring how historical factors, slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination, have contributed to multi-generational poverty. So tell us what you meant by it. Yeah, so that, that was a report I'm very proud of. I did earlier in the year with Richard Reeves at the Brookings Institution and our research assistants, Santiago D'Ambrosi here and Ariel Gelrud Shiro and Chris Pulliam at Brookings where we looked at whether experiencing three generations of poverty was more common among Blacks than among whites. It is much more common, something like one in one in five African-Americans in their 30s versus one in 100, or I'm sorry, one in 50 white Americans in their 30s. It's a pretty dramatic. What do we mean by, by that quote? You know, in some sense, that was a workshop a little bit because I, I think the Brookings folks you know, would, would be willing to go a little bit further on this point than, than I would. The question, I think, is sort of, do we need... I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, sort of race-specific policies, you know, where reparations you can think of as being kind of the most ambitious of those that you can imagine. Or on the other extreme, you know, do we not need to think about race at all, you know, for trying to expand upward mobility or reduce poverty? And I think where I come down is somewhere in, in between those two. I think, you know, the fact of the matter is that entrenched poverty in particular, whether you're talking about multi-generational poverty, whether you're talking about poverty over a long duration of childhood versus you know just one year of poverty 
if you're talking about concentrated poverty, for sure, you know, these are things that are just much more concentrated among African-Americans than, than among whites. When we looked at three-generation poverty, I think we found that something like 85% of 30-somethings who are in their third generation of poverty are African-American. So if, if we're really concerned about entrenched poverty, then that means like trying to think about, you know, why it is that so much of that group is African-American. And I think the reasons are, as you say, you know, this historical legacy of discrimination against, against African-Americans, discrimination that, that continues to some extent today, for sure. But I think I would argue, you know, it's the legacy of the historical discrimination mm-hmm. That's been most important that has left African Americans in concentrated poverty to degrees you know unseen by almost any white Americans. There's this great paper by Pat Sharkey who shows that two thirds of African American kids grow up in concentrated poverty that is only seen by about five percent of white American kids. It's this these legacies that create environments, social environments, physical environments, institutional environments that will continue to disadvantage African-American families into the future unless we change the status quo. And so if we care about reducing entrenched poverty, we've got to think about how we can influence this awful legacy that has mostly put African-Americans in in this position. So I, I guess if you had the answer to that dilemma, you would be retired and living off of speaking and consulting fees to governments all over the country, state and local, federal, everybody giving them the, the set of magic elixirs that are going to fix <laughs> that problem. But I do wonder, acknowledging these challenges around entrenched multi-generational poverty, what are, if we made you, you know, the poverty dictator or the mobility dictator or the prosperity dictator, what would you do about it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I I point to a couple of things that I've proposed in the past. The first would be, you know, I think we should have an office of opportunity in the White House that would be generously funded and and that would essentially provide seed funding for an array of experiments at the local level to figure out how to close early childhood learning gaps. There are pretty large gaps in school readiness when kids come to kindergarten or first grade. And we don't really know, we, we don't do a good job of closing those right now. We have Head Start, which honestly, you know, the research doesn't provide a lot of reason to sort of want to double down on Head Start. So we need to discover ways to close these gaps. But the federal government ought to be you know, massively funding this program to, to uncover effective ways to do that. Pick one other example, you know, something I've, I've written on most more recently is related to the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. I proposed... We have this contrast where over time we've we've done really well reducing the child poverty rate over time. People people don't really realize this, but it's it's a small fraction of what it used to be. And in part, that's because you know we have these safety net programs that, that provide resources to people. But the, a lot of those programs, you know, as we've talked about, you know, may have these disincentives that while they might reduce point in time poverty in the long run, they might actually impede upward mobility as well. And to the extent that African American families are disproportionately beneficiaries of, of some of these programs, then expanding opportunity for them you know, would be well served by reforming some of these programs to expand opportunity more. So what I proposed is increasing the earned income tax credit for married couples. And I propose going back to the old child tax credit, more or less, more generously funded, but not, not anything like what Democrats would like to do, but sort of also giving kids 
whose families don't receive the full child tax credit, a baby bond, essentially a contribution to a, to a savings account that they can't touch until they're 18. And then in my version, as opposed to someone like Cory Booker, you know, who's also proposed something like this, in my version, you know, you could only spend it on certain things that were related to upward mobility, post-secondary schooling, training, a wedding. And then if you sort of follow a certain sequence that's been called the success sequence, which is to say that you avoid long-term joblessness, you avoid, you know, multiple years of, of single parenthood as a young adult. Then you could also use these baby bonds to pay for things like buying a house, starting a small business, putting in a retirement account, that sort of thing. So the use of the baby bonds would be towards things that ought to expand opportunity. And the incentives to behave in ways that will also expand opportunity would also sort of be built in as well. So th those are just sort of two examples. Mm -hmm. I think conservatives you know, ought to devote a lot more attention than we do to upward mobility and crafting a distinctively conservative policy agenda around upward mobility that looks very different than what the left would offer because it worries a lot about incentives and unintended consequences. But that also worries a lot about, you know, racial inequality and, and the fact that, you know, there are a lot of poor white kids, too, who, because of their circumstances, are disadvantaged in terms of getting ahead. Yeah, I think we need to have another conversation where we get all of the scholars at AEI, and there's a significant number of them together to talk about this mobility issue, because we're all coming at it from kind of a variety of different policy perspectives in terms of, is it an education problem? Is it a workforce problem? Is it an economic justice issue? Is it, is it all of these? It's the answer is, of course, that it's all of these things. So, well, Scott, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. You've given me a lot to think about. I need to catch up on some of your work. I'm going to do that. After we get through whatever happens with the president's social investment legislation, I saw on Twitter this morning that Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin were hugging each other outside the Capitol last night. So maybe that's an indication that we are on the precipice of bringing this debate to a close. We'll see. But we'll have you back on to talk about, okay, this is the policy we've got. Now, what do we need to do with it? So again, appreciate your time. Yeah, always a pleasure, Brent. appreciate the work that you do as well on, on all these topics. So more to be said in the future. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.